Last Sunday, we started a message series called Whatever It Takes. If you weren't here last week, you can listen to that on the church app or our church website or download the iTunes podcast. But we started this message series because we believe as a church, God has called us to be willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't mind changing methods and how we do things as a church, but we will never change the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, today I want to take you now to the gospel of Luke chapter 15 as I bring a message entitled, Lost and Found. You know, often I've encountered people who are either on one side or the other of the idea of God's love. There are some religious people who have this impression that, of course, God loves them. They're religious. They try to keep the Ten Commandments. They do good. At least, you know, on most days, they do pretty good. And they're certainly better off than, and then they have a list of people who they think are worse than them. I'm better off than this person. I don't do the bad things that they do. So does God love me? Of course God loves me. God loves me because I'm good. And then there's another group of people that I've encountered over the years who struggle to believe that God could love them because they know they're not good. They feel weighed down by their guilt and their shame of their past or even their present. And they wonder, could God ever love somebody like me? Look at what I've done. Look at the mess I've made of my life. I'm not always that good spouse I ought to be. I wasn't there for my kids when they were growing up or I haven't always been a good neighbor a struggle with an addiction, or whatever it might be, they feel that that disqualifies them from God's love. And they they feel, yeah, God loves those good people, but I just don't know if he could ever love me. And to compound the problem, often those religious people who say, well, of course God loves me because I'm good, agrees with the person who struggles to believe God loves them. And they say, well, surely God doesn't love you. How could God love you? Look at what you're doing. In fact, God's angry at you. God doesn't like you. You are lost to God. You need to straighten up or you're not going to receive God's love. And listen, that is not only an attitude that is wrong on both sides of that equation, both the religious people who think, well, of course God loves me because I'm good. It's also wrong on the other side where people say, well, God doesn't love me because I'm bad. Both groups are wrong. For those of us who are religious... who who try to do a good thing every day, who try to live like we think maybe we ought to, live up to a standard that we think is a good standard. Yes, God loves us, but God does not love us because of anything we do or anything we don't do. God loves us because that's who he is. God is love. And his love towards me and his love towards you is absolutely grace. It is the unmerited, undeserved gift of God in the face of my great demerit. Because here's the dirty little secret that's not really a secret. Those of us who are religious, those of us who are followers of Christ, are just as much sinners as everybody else in the world. The Bible says there is actually no one who is good from God's perspective. Because we've all failed, we've all made mistakes, we've all sinned. Maybe your list of sins look different than mine, but as far as God is concerned, we are all sinners and there are none who are good. But God loves us anyway. And for those of you who are struggling this morning to believe if God could truly love you or if God could love you as much as he loves those other people, I've got good news for you. God loves you. 
perfectly. He will never love you any more than he does right now. He will never love you any less than he does right now because he loves you perfectly. I've told you before about that time when I was just a little kid in the backyard of uh, our home in Valdosta, Georgia. My sister Sharon is a year older than me. And I don't know how old we were, but we were just little kids. And I watched her. She plucked a flower from our flower bed. And for the first time in my little life, I heard someone pluck a flower petal and then say, he loves me. And then pluck another one and say, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. I discovered something about my sister that day. She rigged it to make sure it ended on he loves me. I don't know who he was, but he was going to love her regardless Well, the good news is with God, you don't have to rig it. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question. He loves you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated the love of God for us. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Mark it down today. God loves you. It's a part of who he is. It is his grace. And the reason I'm concerned about these two groups of people is, number one, our church is sent out to tell those who question whether God could ever love them. The answer is yes. And the name of love is Jesus. And I'm also preaching this message because I don't want to be a part of a religious group of people who think that God loves us but he doesn't love them, whoever those people might be. In fact, here's what I've discovered. That my attitude towards those who are far from God reveals whether or not I share the heart of God. You see, I don't share the heart of God no matter how religious I am if I don't have a heart of love for those who are far from God In Fort Caroline Baptist Church, we love what we do here. We love the ministries that we provide for our own church family. But hear me, our heartbeat must not always be only for ourselves. Our greatest heartbeat must be for those who are far from God who have yet to experience His love. God the Father is seeking and saving those who are lost, and we need to join Him in His work. Now, we're not the first people to sometimes struggle with this question of God's love. Even in Jesus' day, there were the religious leaders, the elite of Judaism, who said, God loves us. Of course he does. We're good. We keep the Ten Commandments. We don't do all this list of bad things that other people do. And then there was another group of people who struggled to believe God could love them because of what they've done. And Jesus came to reveal the heart of God, to reveal that God loves, and to reveal that if you really share God's heart, you'll love those who are far from God just like he does. In fact, here in Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus gives to show us the heart of God. When I took our staff up to uh, North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, uh, over the summer, we sat in a session where Andy Stanley, the pastor of the church, preached through, taught through Luke chapter 15. And I want to give you some notes that I took from his talk today. In fact, these notes are on the app. They'll be on the screen as well for you if you want to take some notes of your own. He made one statement that I thought was a very good statement that I'd never considered before. He said, people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked them back. Put that up on the screen for us, that first statement. Uh, People 
who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus, and he liked them back. Whenever you read the Gospel of Luke or any of the Gospels, or particularly the Gospel of Mark, you'll hear the phrase crowds over and over. You know, crowds of people were coming to hear Jesus teach. People who were nothing like Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless. Jesus never had a wrong thought or a wrong motive or a wrong word or a wrong deed. People who were nothing like that liked Jesus. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to associate with him. And the amazing thing is, not only did people who were nothing like Jesus like Jesus, Jesus liked them back. And it got him in trouble with religious people because he's hanging out with those people, those sinners, those bad people, those irreligious people. Now here at Fort Caroline, we had this weird notion that the church is the body of Jesus. It's not actually a weird notion. It's a biblical notion. The Bible uses different metaphors for the church, the group of people who are followers of Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a part of this, you're a part of the church that Jesus founded. I'm not talking Baptist, Methodist, Catholic. I'm talking about people who have put their faith in Christ, been united to Christ and to other believers. That the church is the body of Christ. That's how the Bible describes us. Jesus is the head, but we're the body. We are to flesh out his love for other people. And we have this weird idea that the church ought to look a lot like Jesus because we're his body. And so if people who were far from God were attracted to Jesus and they liked Jesus and Jesus liked them back, then if we want to be like Jesus, we're going to be hanging out with people who are far from God and we're going to like them and we're going to love them like God does. Now, here's the scenario that sets up this tension. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. So, so at the very beginning, you have Jesus hanging out with tax collectors. These are Jewish people who had con contracted to work with the Roman government, the occupying force that had conquered Israel. And they collected taxes from their fellow Jews and they sent it on to help Rome stay in power. And because of that, they were despised by their fellow Jews. How could you work for them after what they've done to us and how they treat us? And often these tax collectors were cheaters. The Roman government said, whatever you collect from your area that meets our quota, you just send on to us. And if you collect more than meets the quota, you keep the extra. And so they often defrauded people into paying more taxes than they owed. And so they, there again, they were despised by the Jewish people. They were not allowed into the temple to worship. They were considered unclean because they had so much contact with Gentiles. And then you have the sinners. That's everybody else that doesn't meet the standard of the religious leaders of Israel. These are the people who didn't keep the Ten Commandments nor did they keep the 613 oral traditions of the law that the Pharisees and scribes had put on people. You thought Ten Commandments were hard to keep? What if you had a compendium of 613 other things that you have to do and not do in order to be considered in God's good graces? These are the sinners that aren't living up to the standard, and they're drawing near to Jesus. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes, grumbled. They muttered under their breath. They complained saying, this man receives sinners. Literally, it means he welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
But he fellowships with these people. He hangs out with these people. If this man were really from God like he says he's from God, then he wouldn't hang out with those kind of people because he would know God doesn't love those kind of people. God doesn't like those kind of people. God doesn't hang out with those kind of people. God doesn't have time for those kind of people. That's what the Pharisees are thinking and the scribes are thinking. And Jesus knows this. He knows what they're thinking. He hears their complaint. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. A parable is a made-up story using earthly ideas and imagery to teach a spiritual lesson. So he's going to tell them a story. Verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And whenever Jesus asks us, which one of you? I mean, they would all have to say, yeah, I would do that. If, if I was a shepherd and I had a hundred sheep, ninety-nine are safe, I've counted them all as they've come into the fold, but where's Fluffy? I'm missing Fluffy. Fluffy is nowhere to be found. I would leave the ninety-nine who were safely gathered in the open field, and I would go and do whatever I had to do to find the one who's lost. That's what you do. Now, the reason you do it is not because these sheep are pets. These are, these are valuable possessions. This is how you make a livelihood for your family. That one sheep represents a great, valuable investment that you've made, and you don't just say, oh, well, I've still got 99. No, you don't stay in business long if that's how you handle your assets. You go and you look for that one. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And everybody has to be agreeing with Jesus at this point. How do you argue with this? They would say, Yeah, exactly. We understand this. The guy has a great investment. He's lost something valuable. He's going to do whatever he can to find it. And if he finds it, he's going to come back happy. And he's going to invite others to join in his happiness and his joy. In fact, Jesus is telling us when we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's not lost. And I agree with that. Whenever we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's not lost. This shepherd neglects the 99, leaves the 99, and he goes to find the one that is lost because that one is valuable to him. The shepherd doesn't say, I've still got 99. Now, whenever our kids were little, I took them to the mall. We were at the Regency Mall. Actually, we just had Joshua and Casey at the time. I was thinking about that this morning. We only had two kids at the time. And, and you know, I'm looking around at stuff. I don't know we were in Pennies or Sears or somewhere. And, and I think I'm a very conscientious parent, but I've got my two kids with me, and all of a sudden I look down and Joshua is not there. Oh no, where has he gone? You know, and it just a moment of fear just jumps into your heart thinking, I've lost my kid. I've lost my child. Where is Josh? And not only was I fearful that I've lost him, I'm fearful I've got to face Donna that I've lost him. You know, I, I, tr I can't trust you to take two kids to the mall. Now, what didn't occur to me was to say, oh, I've lost Joshua. I still got Casey. <laughs> One out of two ain't bad. I, I didn't lose both of them. It could have been worse. Still got Casey. No, no, no. You, 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 you focus on what's lost and neglect of what's not 
lost. And that's what the shepherd is doing. And this is what Jesus is making the point about how the father feels about even one person who was far from him, who experiences his love and comes home. Jesus says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Great, you're trying to do what's right today. But do you know what thrills the Father's heart? Is when one who was lost is found. That's what thrills the Father's heart. Now Jesus isn't finished yet. Jesus is almost like the curtain comes down on scene one, comes back up on scene two. Jesus gives a second story in this one parable. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins? If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. I mean, listen, this is a poor woman that Jesus is describing. Her whole life savings are comprised in ten coins. Each coin represents a day's wage. So to lose one coin means she's lost a full day's worth of income. And when you are poor and you're living paycheck to paycheck, losing even one silver coin is absolutely devastating. And you're going to do whatever you can do to find it. Listen, if you've ever been there and you you don't know if you're going to be able to buy some food for the kids or you don't know if you can find enough money to make that next payment, you know what it's like to pull the cushions out of the sofa. And to dig in between and to find M&M's and pretzels hoping to find some quarters and some change. You know what it is to go through the kid's piggy bank and say, Daddy will pay you back, but we have got to scrape together every penny. That's what this woman is feeling. And everybody that's hearing Jesus can relate to her feeling. And they say, yeah, exactly. She's going to light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently... Until she finds it. Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is saying, When we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. We can all relate to that. If it's valuable to us, we will go to great lengths to find it. And Jesus says, just so. This is exactly how God operates. You may not think this person is valuable, but as far as God is concerned, they are absolutely valuable. You know how much he would pay to get them back? The blood of his own dear son. God's going to great lengths to save that which was lost. Today's my wife's birthday. And I was thinking this morning how I used to, you know, go and look for just the perfect card. I am such a sap. I would be reading cards and tearing up in the aisle at Walgreens, you know. (laughs) And you remember Hallmark used to have a slogan that said, When you care enough to send the very best. And you know, when God sent Jesus, it was because he cared enough about you and me that he sent heaven's best. He sent Jesus. Why? Because when we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. Jesus isn't finished yet, hammering home his point. The curtain comes down on scene two, opens up on scene three. Look at verse 11. 
And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. We've read this so many times, I think we lose the impact of that. Basically, this son said, Dad, I know that part of your inheritance comes to me when you die. I wish you were dead now. I want, not you, I want what's coming to me from you. I don't want a relationship with you. I want money, I want possessions, and I don't want anything to do with you. And the father divided his property between his two sons. Andy Stanley made the statement, the son had already left home relationally before he left home physically. That's certainly true. But the father was willing to let the son go if that's what it took to get him back. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? This Jewish boy that ran from home, wasted everything that his father had given to him, lost all of his fair-weathered friends, had his condo, kicked him out of his condo, had his little sports car repossessed, lost everything. Finally comes to his senses. What have I done? Look at the mess I've made of my life. I had a father who loved me. And even my father's hired slaves, servants, have more than enough bread to eat. And I'm sitting here starving to death. And he said he was missing home and wondering if home was missing him. And there are people right here in our community, maybe someone here this morning far from God, wondering... Does God miss me? Would God have me back? Look at verse 18. The son says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And verse 20 says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt. And how would you fill in that blank? What did the father feel when he saw his son who had said, I wish you were dead. I don't want anything to do with you. All I want is what you have to give me. What would you say to that son who had broken his father's heart? What would you say to that son who had made a mess of his life? What would you have felt about him? And how you and I answer, how you and I fill in that blank reveals whether or not we share the heart of God. Some religious people in some churches feel anger. Some churches and religious people feel satisfaction. Well, good, he got what he deserved. Made a mess of his life. Made his bed, let him lie in it. Gave him a chance, he blew it. Too bad. So sad. Some Christians in some churches just would say, I felt indifferent. I really don't care. Could care less about those who are far from God. I'm happy, got my life going, doing all that I think is right. He's not my problem. 
But how did the father feel? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. It's another word for love. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now the son starts his speech. The son said to his said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now the father interrupts the speech. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my, how does he describe this boy? Does he say servant? That's all the son could hope for. Just treat me like a servant. No, 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 no. No, the father's love says, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That is the father's heart. The father's heart celebrates when one who is lost is found by God's grace, God's love. The father's heart is filled with compassion. And listen, if we have a heart like God's, then we will rejoice like God when one who is far from God is rescued by God. If that's not what excites us as a church, if that's not what motivates us as a church, is to think that we have the privilege of joining God the Father in reaching out in love to those who are far away from Him so they can be found by His grace. If that doesn't motivate us, if that doesn't excite us, then our heart does not match the heart of God. If what gets us excited is when we like the music and the preacher was dressed like I think preachers ought to be dressed, when the parking lot was plentiful, when the children's programming was perfect, If that's really all that motivates us and excites us, if that's what fills our conversation in the hallways or on the way home, then I think we've missed the heart of God. What ought to motivate us? What ought to get us excited? What ought to make us stand up and shout? What ought to make us stand up and sing praise to God is that we know the name of love. We know the name of forgiveness. We know the name of hope. We know the name of restoration. We know the name of joy. His name is Jesus. And we get to tell as many people as possible his precious name so that he can bring them back to the Father. I don't have time. Our time is gone. Amen. You can give God a hand for that. I don't have time to read verses 25 through 32, but that's going to be your homework because the whole audience that Jesus is preaching this and teaching this to are the religious people of his day who had thought they had the heart of God but really missed the heart of God. It was the Pharisees and the scribes who got happy when people could live by their checklist but didn't get happy when sinners and tax collectors and adulterous women and prostitutes and lepers and whoever else came near to Jesus and liked Jesus. And Jesus liked them back. They didn't celebrate that. And Jesus says, you've missed the heart of the Father. If we have a heart like God's, then we will rejoice like God over every sinner who is rescued by God. So who do you want to be like? The religious people that Jesus is rebuking here? Or do you want to be like the Lord Jesus and his heavenly father, a heart filled with compassion for those who are far from God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, I pray that right now every follower of Jesus 
would hear anew and afresh this parable of Jesus that reveals the heart of our Heavenly Father for those who are far from Him. And they would say, Dear God, align my heart with yours. Align our church's heart with yours. Where what motivates us and excites us is to see you and to partner with you in rescuing people far from you through the gospel of Jesus. Because God, if we will just pause for a moment, we have to confess we were once that lost sheep. We have been that lost son. And in grace, you came and found us and saved us and rejoiced over us. Help us to always have your heart. And God, if there's someone in this room today who for the first time in their life needs to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that right now, before it's eternally too late for them, they would say, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me so much that you would die for me on a cross. Thank you for revealing God's love for me as you stretched out your arms and bled and died in my place, taking my punishment for all my sin. I believe you rose from the dead, and right now I believe you're alive and that you can hear me when I pray. So, dear Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin and sorrow, and I ask you to forgive me, to make me right with my heavenly Father, and I thank you on the authority of your word. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In Jesus' name, we all pray and God's people said, amen.